welcome to the Iran podcast. I'm Negar Murtazavi in Washington, D.C. In this episode, I speak to Maz Jobrani, an Iranian-American comedian and actor. We talk about comedy in the COVID era, Maz's experience working as a Middle Easterner in Hollywood, growing up as an immigrant in America, and how Maz lost some friends and fans in the Trump era. My guest today is Maz Dobrani, an Iranian-American comedian and actor who really needs no introduction. He's joining me from California. Maz, welcome to the Iran podcast. Thank you for introducing me. Thank you for saying I don't need introduction, but I do. <laughs> <laughs> we'll talk about all your work. Um, so how are you doing? How has life in a pandemic been for you? You know, life has relatively been good. It's been, I look at pictures and videos from a year ago and... Um, it's hard to believe that was a year ago when everybody was panicking and we didn't know what was going to happen. And I was growing out my beard. I was doing Instagram live shows every day. Um, and then I was, um, I was also spending time going on bike rides with my kids. We, we just, we just kind of went with it. And, and I think as a family on this back end, I feel like there's a lot of silver linings in there that we had spending time with each other, movie nights, and um, we got a dog through the pandemic. Um, so there's a lot of good things that happen. And I am very aware of how lucky and privileged we are to have been able to get through this pandemic with, um, you know, being being able to to do all of that. Because I know a lot of people, obviously, um, people lost loved ones. I know that people lost their livelihoods. I know that it's, it was just hard on on a lot of people around the world. So I really always count my blessings. Mm-hmm. Yeah, same here. And you also have a new podcast now. Is this one of the pandemic podcast projects like mine? Uh, I, no, I've had the podcast now for a little over two years. I just didn't do a good job of promoting it before because um, I was on tour a lot. And so mm. it was almost a project as, as a passion project. It's called Back to School with Maz Jobrani. And it came about because my kids, anyone who has kids knows your kids ask you questions that you don't have the answers for. So I found <laughs> myself going to Google a lot to get answers for them. And then I decided, you know what, rather than going to Google, why don't I bring in experts and we can learn from them? So I would bring in different professors, authors, experts, and we would talk about all kinds of subjects from economics to politics to space. And um, more recently, it's just become an excuse to have interesting conversations with people that I find interesting. So we've had people from Robert Reich, who's The Economist, to Michael Cohen, who was Donald Trump's former fixer, to a guy named Frank Figluzzi, who was a former FBI um, counterterrorism expert, to a lady named uh, Jill Heinhurst, who was a cave diver, to Firuz Naderi, to Karim Sajidpur, you name it. We've had them. And it's just an interesting conversation that we try to have with people. Mm-hmm. So tell me, what was the question? What was the questions or question your kids asked you that prompted you to start the podcast? Uh, Negarjun, they would ask me every question. I realized I don't know anything. <laughs> Once I had kids, you know, they would ask me, how does it rain? I'd be like, I don't know. Let me go Google it. Uh, why is, uh, how far is the sun? Oof, I'm not quite sure. Uh, how does democracy work? Oof, I don't know. So I was constantly going to Google and Googling things. Um, they just keep coming up with questions that you just don't know answers for. I mean, you know, you get a guy like Firuz Naderi on there who is a former NASA J- JPL um, engineer scientist. He helped land the rover on Mars. And you start talking to him about outer space and the things he tells you all the time from, you know, the idea of, for example, a very interesting story he told us was that he was part of the team that helped land the rover on Mars um, a few years back, not the most recent one. Actually, he was involved with the recent one a little bit too, but the previous one. And he told us the story that it took them, I don't know, four or five years to get the project together and prepare the, the rover and get it up into space. And he said what was crazy was it takes, he said, about eight minutes for a signal to come from Mars back to Earth. So they knew that Rover had gotten into the Mars atmosphere, but they didn't know if it had landed. So he said those last eight minutes, we were waiting 
for the signal to come back to find out if it had landed. And he said, finally, after eight minutes of just sitting on pins and needles, the mission control goes, you know, rover has landed. And he goes, I just started crying because it was four years, five years, whatever it was, of just continuing to work and the mission was successful. So, so you hear stories like that. Or we had Michael Cohen on and Michael Cohen told us that he remembers giving Donald Trump his first iPhone and watching Donald Trump tweet and watching Donald Trump tweet the birther lie about Barack Obama and seeing the feedback that he got and realizing that he was onto something, that he <laughs> that if, if he says crazier and crazier things, he's going to have more and more followers. So those were all very interesting conversations and there's a lot of them and we continue to have them and I hope people find it. It's you know, available wherever podcasts are available. It's just called Back to School with Maz Jobrani. Mm -hmm. Which reminds me, I should invite Firuz Naderi also on the Iran podcast. So um, talk about your uh, comedy special. You also have a new stand-up comedy special called Pandemic Warrior on Peacock TV. What is that about? How's it going? Yeah, so Peacock TV is NBC's streaming network. So, mm -hmm. so they started getting into stand-up comedy this year. And um, my comedy special called Pandemic Warrior is on there. It's available. It was a comedy special that I filmed in December of 2019. in Dubai. And the goal was to come back to the States in 2020, edit it and uh, get it out on a streaming network. Well, as you know, the pandemic hit. And so that um, premiere of that special was put on hold. Now, while it was waiting, I saw other comedy specials that had been filmed before the pandemic, and they came out during the pandemic. And watching them felt like I was watching a comedy show from Mars because the audience was close to each other. Nobody was masked. It just felt like a different world because we were under the pandemic watching things filmed before the pandemic. The comedian was talking about traffic, just things that didn't make any sense. And so I decided rather than just putting out the special the way I had filmed it in Dubai, I was going to film a few minutes at the beginning and a few minutes at the end. of me performing stand-up comedy the way I was doing it under the pandemic. Because what mm -hmm. happened under the pandemic, we, st we all started doing stand-up comedy on Zoom or on Instagram Live into a camera from a, a closet in our homes. Mm -hmm. So when you watch the special, you'll see me for the first three or four minutes basically in this walk-in closet and I'm just doing stand-up comedy in there. And then, and then I say, now let's go to the show that I filmed in Dubai before the pandemic, you watch that and then you come back at the end and I'm doing closet comedy again. So I basically say it was filmed in Dubai and in my closet and um, it's, uh, I hope people enjoy it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was going to ask you how the pandemic has impacted comedy and, you know, it's been very challenging for all artists, but especially those who are in performing arts, basically all performances were canceled for a very long time. And like you're saying, comedians have had to find alternative ways, performers and comedians. How have you seen the pandemic affecting comedy in general in the past year? Well, initially it was really difficult first of all every live performers you know livelihood just i mean or, or i should say their income just took a nosedive because every theater around the world every venue around the world was closed um and so there was you know from broadway to musicians to comedians work there was no work and so really the the industry that was affected one of the hardest was 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 live entertainment and that goes also to people who worked in those places, whether they were, you know, ticket takers or wait staff or what have you. So it hit the industry hard. Um, again, I was fortunate enough to have been um, able to um, have had the resources from previous years to be able to, you know, ride it out. Um, and then the question became, well, what about the artistic side? Well, the artistic side is interesting for comedy because if you're a musician, you can play music And you don't need to hear people clap or laugh or cry every time you sing one a line from your song. Um, but comedians, we need to hear your laugh. Every time mm -hmm. we tell a joke, we got to hear the laugh. It's part of the rhythm. It's part of what keeps the show going. So at first it was difficult because I, I thought, well, how are we going to do that? There, we can't be in a room with people. 
So I was doing Instagram live shows, and those were interesting because, you know, people can put click the hearts, but that's not laughter. Then I was hesitant to try a Zoom show, but there was a, a group of Googlers who wanted to do a, a show, and they said that they would um, donate the funds to a charity that I work with called International Medical Corps. And so I said, okay, let's try it. And we tried it, and it was actually quite fun. And I realized the key to doing Zoom shows was you need to unmute maybe 10 or 20 of the audience members so that you can hear their laughter. And the other benefit of having Zoom, it's like being in a live room because you get to see people in their homes and you can do crowd work and talk to them. So mm -hmm. anytime I would do a Zoom show, I would start with me as spotlighted and, and I could see myself, but then eventually I would go to gallery mode so I could watch everybody else and start talking to them. And so that just became fun. So we, I did Zoom shows. I did uh, drive-in shows. The drive-in shows were where you would be on a stage and they would project you your image onto a screen, a big screen behind you, and people would be in their cars and just like a drive-in movie, a bunch of cars in front of you, and they would be listening to you on a radio station that they that that had they'd been told to listen to. So that was interesting because they could hear me, but I couldn't hear them because they're in their cars. So I go, well, how do I hear the laughter if I can't hear the laughter? Well, I, the first time I did it, it was really tough because I didn't know how to hear the laughter. So I just kind of what what normally would take an hour took you know forty minutes, and I was done. And I go, oh my god, that was really tough. But then I realized the second time I did it that instead of laughter, I needed to hear honking. So we established <laughs> that. So if people were enjoying the jokes, they would honk. And so the second show that I did. Uh, as a drive-in was a lot more fun. And then I did a third show as a drive-in. And so I'd learned how to do that. Um, I also did outdoor shows uh, around Los Angeles. There was a lot of outdoor shows popping up in all kinds of strange venues. Like there was a nightclub that took basically what I think was an alley behind the nightclub and they turned it into a comedy outdoor comedy club. There was a weed dispensary that, that turned their garage into a, their parking lot into a um, comedy club. And it was interesting because again, they would do social distancing and it was cold out. And I, and I, and I would go on stage. I'd say, I never thought I was going to be doing stand-up comedy in my ski outfit. You know, you'd have a jacket, gloves, <laughs> hats, and people were doing shows in their backyards. I did shows everywhere. And it was interesting again, but, but again, people were spread out. So I always would say at those shows, I said, you know, they're spread out. They have blankets over themselves. They're in winter gear. I said, it feels like we're in the TV show, The Walking Dead, and we're waiting for the zombies to get us, and we're doing one last show before they get us. So those were all types of shows I did. And I also, just to see what it was like, I went to a couple of states where they were not as, um, let's say, uh, adherent to the pandemic codes as we were in California. So there was a few states where the comedy clubs remained open at, um, at partial capacity, but still they were open. So whether it was Arizona, Texas, Florida, uh, Tennessee, those places kept their clubs open. So I actually went to Arizona uh, in the fall and did a weekend of shows at a comedy club with they basically had like, I don't know, 50% capacity or something. So there was maybe a hundred of us in a room um, the room actually fit 500. So I think people were still very uh, uh, wary about coming out. And I understood. I, I totally got it. But the people who did come out were, were required to wear masks unless if they were eating. And um, I will say that it felt really good. I feel that people were getting pandemic fatigue and they wanted to laugh. And it was it was cathartic for me, too. Um, to be able to be on stage and tell jokes, even uh, indoors. But again, we kept socially distanced. Mm -hmm. Now, I want to go from the pandemic era back to the Trump era. You mentioned the previous president um, briefly. It was it was a strange four years. It, um, I remember you long ago. You had this axis of evil comedy tour with a few other Muslim comedians and it seems like the Trump era took Islamophobia and you know racism to a whole new level there was this travel ban 
um, enacted by the president that impacted a few countries, including Iran. Many Iranian Americans were impacted. How did it go when you talk about those four years um, as a comedian, as an Iranian American in Hollywood, in in California, dealing with all of these issues that you have been, that has been on your radar and in your experience from the years before. But tell me um, how it was in those four years. Well, I think it was a heightened four years for everybody. I think that it was very, it, it caused a lot of anxiety. It caused a lot of friendships to be broken up. Um, it was just, everything was heightened. I mean, if you think about it, if no other reason, I mean, even if somebody was a fan of Donald Trump's. Just the fact of being able to wake up and not have to read some crazy tweet, that in itself it's, is, is a, a, a mode of relaxation, or I should say it's a calming effect. You know, just to have a president who's boring on Twitter is calming. I mean, it really is. <laughs> it just had everybody on hyper alert. And I think we were, um, I think we were hostage to his insanity i really think that if i mean i'm not a i'm not a psychologist but i think if you were to um analyze him you would say that he's got a lot of psychological issues uh, including this obsession with controlling things and because of that i think that he was somebody who just could not stop himself from tweeting insanity you know it's one mm -hmm. thing to tweet policy it's another thing to tweet some accomplishment but it's a completely different thing to just constantly be attacking, 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 and going after people, people that sometimes are completely trivial. If you're the president of the most powerful country in the world, why are you worried about some actor or actress speaking about you at a, you know, award show? Who cares? Like, it's just, you know, move on. But mm -hmm. he wasn't able to do that. And so I think as a society, we all started taking sides, some people defending him, some people criticizing him. It's interesting because, as you know, my I've always been very much uh, someone who supports the underdog, someone who tries to support people who are being persecuted, whether it's um, in a country like Iran or a country in America or mm. China. I don't care where. If people are being persecuted or they're being victimized, I take their side. And um, And it was interesting because, as you said, under George Bush – there was definitely this demonization of Muslims, and and part of that was because it was after September 11th, and 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 you know to Bush's credit, now he did make a comment at some point saying that not all Muslims are bad, which was okay, thank you. Mm -hmm. uh, but there was definitely a big anti-Muslim sentiment um, right after September 11th during the Bush era, the axis of evil. All of those terms came from there. And so even back then, I was making jokes about Bush, and most people would go along with it. There were times when um, I did some Bush jokes when we went to war with Iraq, and there were people in the audience who were upset that I was making fun of our commander-in-chief. Somebody said, you can't make fun of our commander-in-chief at a time of war. And I had to remind them, I said, the whole point of us going into Iraq is supposedly to bring them democracy. And you're saying to me that I can't practice my democratic right of criticizing my president. The whole point of America is to criticize our presidents. We've done that forever, whether it's a Republican or a Democrat, doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. Anyway, that was then. Under Trump, it just went to another level. Under Trump, when I would do a Trump joke, there was times when I felt like people thought I was talking about their grandmother, their favorite oh, grandmother. Wow. You know, yeah, because they people people really took it personally. And, and I... Mm -hmm continue to try to remind them that this is the country that where we're free to make fun of our leaders. We should make fun of our leaders. And by the way, no person is infallible. Like I think he really did a good job of making his supporters feel that he is a victim, that he is a hundred percent right, that he could never be wrong. And that becomes dangerous because again, if you came to me and you said, look, Maz, you support Barack Obama, you support Joe Biden, and yet they did this, this, and this that was um, something that was uh, a bad thing, I would be the first one to say to you, yes, I agree, you're right. They they made mistakes. They're not infallible. But the opposite side does not seem to be the, the same. Like when you bring 
certain things to a lot of Trump supporters. You go, well, what about his handling of coronavirus? No, well, that was the CDC. I mean, they 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 deflect, right? What about his handling mm-hmm. of the children at the border? No, well, what about his handling? And and so you look at this guy's history, and he's done a good job of of I think he's a big charlatan. I think that if you go back to before he was president, just look at his history. I mean, he's he's you know not paid a lot of his contractors. He's bankrupted several businesses. He's um, always been out for himself. He's you know he was a big proponent of the birther lie. He's now a big proponent of the election lie. I mean, it's just on and on and on. And so, I have a hard time not talking about him. Uh, I know that a lot of the Iranian community began to support him because they thought that somehow he was going to get rid of the mullahs and the Islamic Republic of Iran. And I would always say to those folks, I would say, listen, I am also a critic of the Islamic Republic of Iran. I also would like more freedoms for the people of Iran. I would like Iran to be democratic. I would like Iran to have human rights, women's rights, LGBTQ rights, Baha'i rights, Jewish rights, all of that. And I would like this regime to, you know, I I, I do not support an Islamic uh, regime, in, in all honesty. I, I mean, that's just, you know, and, and I've criticized them in the past. And I can't even go mm-hmm. back to Iran because of the criticisms I've made of that government. However, when you go on and say, what is the solution to the Trump supporters? And they would say, well, he's going to get rid of them. And I would say, how? They say, I don't know. He's just going to do it. And I say, well, there's no, there's no plan there. And I firmly believe that if you look at his um, actions, the way that he met with Kim Jong-un, I believe that if the current government of Iran had said to Donald Trump, listen, let's meet and we'll, you know, make some uh, um, uh, uh, compromises with you and we'll even let you build a Trump Tower in Tehran, I think that he would have taken the deal. And and I don't think that he cared about the people of Iran because if he cared about the people of Iran, then he would not have uh, implemented the travel ban. The travel ban was something that stopped a lot of young Iranians and other Iranians that weren't, you know, that that have family here from coming to America. Mm-hmm. Um, and I felt bad for those people because in Iran they were being, you know, they weren't given opportunities because the government does not provide opportunities to young people. And some of those young people were able to come to America and find some, you know, some hope. And then all of a sudden the travel ban stopped those people from coming. And so that to me shows someone who does not care for the people of Iran. And, and, and again, I understand the struggles of the people of Iran. And I, and I hope that if we can help in some way, I would love to help to bring those freedoms to the people of Iran to bring, you know, um, basically if we could somehow bring a democ- dem- democracy and freedoms to the people of Iran, I would do that. But again, when you talk to those supporters, the Trump supporters, you would say, well, does that mean you support a war with Iran? Like, what's your end game? And sometimes they would say, yeah, if if a million innocent Iranians have to die, I don't care. And I would say, you're, it's easy for you to be in Beverly Hills and make that mm-hmm. statement. It's another thing for you to be on the streets of Iran and say, yes, I'm ready to have America drop bombs on the whole country to get rid of this regime. Um, so it was, a, it was a complicated time. And I think he, again, I know I lost friends. I know I lost fans. And I know that I also, there was groups that were trying to, um, you know, paint me as a supporter of the regime. And I do my best to remind them, anytime there's been someone in a prison in Iran and there's been a campaign, I support the free, freeing of that person. Anytime mm-hmm. there's been a critic of the government of Iran, I'm always trying to support. I'm always trying to support the people of Iran. And I believe that people were not able to see nuances once Trump was there. It was either you're with Trump or you're against Trump. I even one time got into a, an argument with somebody uh, on a Twitter feed and I said, listen, I can be a critic of Trump and Khamenei at the same time. I can walk mm-hmm. and chew gum. They both, to me, remind me of the same person. They both want full control of the government. You know, Trump was doing a good job of uh, trying to, um, um, what's the word, uh, to devalue the the strength of the media. Um, so he was basically attacking the media. He attacked Congress. He attacked the courts. So he wanted full control. He wanted to be able to tell his people, I'm right. 
nobody else's. Well, that reminds me of Khamenei. Khamenei does the same thing. He is the supreme leader. Trump was becoming our supreme leader. So I think they have a lot more in common than, than people would be willing to admit. It's interesting you say that, actually, John Limbert, a former hostage at the U.S. Embassy in Tehran, who some of the same groups actually accuse him of being, you know, supportive of the regime. He had this excellent article in the Los Angeles Times, I don't know if you saw it, that he explained what he thinks Trump has in common with the Ayatollah Khomeini, the founder of the Islamic Republic, and he talks about the storming of the U.S. Capitol and how Trump supported it. I actually had a conversation with him on this podcast a couple of months ago, so I encourage our audience to go back and listen to that conversation with John Limbert. It's called U.S. and Iran Wrestling the Ghosts of History. He's it, a, It's also, you know, the cult of personality. That's a big mm, thing. Khomeini exactly. had the cult of personality. Trump has the cult of personality, and I think it blinds people Rather than people stepping back and going, wait a minute, this is a human being. They, it's impossible for any human being to be right 100% of the time. Mm -hmm. Again, you could support the person, you could support their policies, and you could support what they do, but you have to be willing to admit that they make mistakes. Khomeini made a lot of mistakes. I mean, if you, all you have to do is look at the current state of Iran's economics. You need to look at the current state of the pollution in the place like Tehran or you know, there was, I think, if I'm not mistaken, there was there was things where Khomeini had said early on where he said, you know, as people were leaving, the doctors and the brain drain, and he said, we don't need those doctors. We'll train doctors, you know, in a week or two or something, some crazy quote. And it's like, no, you're not, you're not qualified to do that. And so just because you are well-versed in Quranic studies doesn't make you someone who's a good leader of a of a country it, in many ways in economics and the political system and all of that stuff and similarly if somebody says oh donald trump is a good businessman which by the way remains to be isn't is you know that can be argued that no he's not mm -hmm. but just because you're good at business doesn't make you qualified to lead a country in many many aspects and i would argue that that they both you know did uh, um you know were detrimental to their respective countries in many ways. I mean, here we are uh, the year after the pandemic hit and, you know, even his own Trump's own um, coronavirus expert, Dr. Burks, uh, the lady who was sitting next to him when he talked about the UV rays and the disinfectant, she said in a recent CBS uh, 60 minutes interview, I think, where she said, look, after the first wave, if we had taken the coronavirus seriously and admitted to the fact that we had a pandemic and handled it the way the doctors and experts were saying we should handle it, she said we would have had a lot less uh, loss of life. And yet he continued to try to downplay it. He said it would be gone in April. He said it was going to miraculously disappear. He would encourage people not to wear masks. I mean, it became this I mean, who politicizes a mask? Like, what is that? I mean, it's just, it's unbelievable. I talk to friends in other countries where they are a little less combative with their leadership. And they say, yeah, when we were told to, you know, lock down and stay indoors, we did. When we were told to wear masks, most, you know, 99% of people wore masks and they were able to handle it. And so, yeah, it's, uh, it's an interesting thing when the cult of personality takes over and people think that their leaders are infallible. I think that's a very dangerous place to be. Mm -hmm. I want to go back just beyond the Trump era. I know you've talked about this. You've shared your experiences of being an Iranian-American of Iranian descent in Hollywood and Middle Eastern. You have this best-selling book that's called I'm Not a Terrorist, but I've played one on TV Share a little bit of that experience of being casted in Hollywood as an Iranian, trying to break through as an actor, as a comedian of that origin in the face of these, um, you know, you mentioned the 9-11, the Trump era, these decades of, of different events and how that's been as an experience for you? Well, you know, I left Iran when I was six years old, late 1978. We moved to Northern California. That's where I grew up. And quickly after we landed, the hostage crisis happened. And so mm -hmm. right away, all the Iranians who'd come from Iran to America to get away from the Islamic Republic 
were suddenly being blamed for the actions of the Islamic Republic. And as you know, when it comes to things like um, patriotism, blind patriotism, and the racism that goes with it, those people who are, um, you know, enacting that racism are not uh, able to see the difference between people who have come from a country and they're running from that country versus the people in that country who might be supporting the actions of that country. So mm. we were uh, teased as kids. They used to call us effing Iranians. They would beat us up. I didn't get beaten up really, but I did get teased. Um, I he I've heard of people's lives being threatened even. Um, so it was, a, it was a very, very tumultuous time. It was hard to be Iranian in the early 80s in America. So you go from that to Iran-Contra to a movie like Not Without My Daughter to uh, September 11th that had nothing to do with Iranians. But again, American you know, blind patriotism doesn't see the difference. So it's been years and years and years of the demonization of people from that part of the world. Whether you're Muslim or not doesn't matter if you're from the Middle East people would see you in a specific way. So as a kid, I did plays, I did musicals, and the musicals we did, I got to play all kinds of parts from, you know, um, in, a, in a play called Little Abner, I was Little Abner, who was, you know, somebody from the country, like Southerner. Um, later in high school, we did a musical around Batman, and I was Batman. So I got to play all kinds of cool and fun parts. Once you come to Hollywood, and this was in the early, uh, in the late '90s, early 2000s, in Hollywood. Most of the parts that were written for people from my background tended to be bad guy parts, like terrorist mm. parts. And so early on, I didn't know any better. I, I took a few of those parts, and and I played a, an Afghan terrorist once in a Chuck Norris movie of the week. And I went to do it, and and I really felt bad doing it. And then I came back and told my agents, I said, I don't want to do those types of parts anymore. Uh, and then the TV show 24 was out at that time, and they had the part of a terrorist who changes his mind halfway through the mission. And I said, oh, okay, that's the ambivalent terrorist. I'll take it. And this is all <laughs> after September 11th. So all those parts were coming out. And eventually what happened was I just said no to those types of parts. And I have not had another terrorist part or audition in years now. I did continue to play other parts like the guy who might be a falafel shop owner or a taxi driver or those types mm -hmm. of parts didn't bother me as much simply because living in America, I see Middle Eastern people who do those types of things. And yes, it's not, you know, the doctor or the lawyer or whatever you want me to play, but it is still uh, a part that sometimes had comedy in it, sometimes was fun. And so I didn't mind taking those parts, but as the years have gone by, I'm encouraged because we have more and more young people from the backgrounds, Iranian, Arab, Muslim, Pakistani, Indian, who are telling their own stories. And I think that Hollywood now is trying more and more to find authentic stories from authentic points of views to tell those stories. So I feel like we're headed in the right direction. Um, I'm, I'm hoping we have a show on air sometime soon with an Iranian family that is um, seen in a positive light. We currently have Nassim Pedrad's uh, TV show, Chad, that's on TBS about an Iranian boy in high school. She plays an Iranian boy. Um, so that in itself is uh, progress. And um, yeah, it's always been a little bit of a struggle. I mean, stand-up comedy has given me a place to, to um, basically... Uh, uh, express myself when it comes to that kind of stuff. So the good news about stand-up is you can go on stage, make fun of those stereotypes. You can go on stage and be closer to who you are. Um, and I've been able to, even, even if the parts that were coming were those negative stereotypes, I was able to go on stage and make fun of them and, and basically out the negative um, stereotypes in my comedy. Mm-hmm. You've played on, you've been in Grey's Anatomy, Curb Your Enthusiasm, Shameless, Last Man Standing, many other TV shows and um, non-TV movies. What has been your favorite part all these years that you've played? Oh, gosh, that's hard to say. Curb Your Enthusiasm was a lot of fun. I played an Indian Sikh uh, mm. uh, the season when uh, Larry David goes to do the the producers on Broadway and that was a lot of fun because as an actor, 
there's no lines to learn. They just say, okay, in this scene, Larry doesn't tip you, so you're upset. And so we just improvise it. So that's a lot of fun. <laughs> Improvising is a lot of fun. I did a movie called Friday After Next with Ice Cube. It was the third uh, in a, in a three-part trilogy. And that was a lot of fun because I was on set with a bunch of comedians like Cat Williams, Mike Epps, John Witherspoon. Um, Terry Crews was part of that. And uh, that was fun, again, because they would say, let's film it the way we've written it, and then let's improvise. And again, it was a lot of fun. Uh, I did my own movie, Jimmy Vestwood, American Hero, which was my attempt at doing the uh, 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 Persian version of the Peter Sellers Pink Panthers. It was about this Iranian guy who wins the green card lottery to come to America. He wants to be an American hero. And then he sometimes somehow ends up in a plot to start world war three and he's got to stop it and that was just a silly and fun comedy that was a lot of fun to do because i got to write it with my writing partner amira hepsian i got to produce it with my producing partner and manager ray mohit and amir and then we got to cast a bunch of our friends and we shot it over 18 days and it was just a lot of fun i was the star of it and we had people like navid negahban in there and we had rudy bakhtiar show up and bita milanian and Amir K and Tehran and Tara Grammy and um, we had uh, uh, John Hurd who's uh, passed away since and he was the um, the dad he was the dad in Home Alone people know mm -hmm. him from a lot of stuff we had Vida Rahramani we had Marshall Manesh uh, Sam Golzari Nusha Jafarian it was just a, a fun fun time every day a new person would come on set and be like oh hey what's going on it was a friend you know dan ahdut um that was a lot of fun so those are mm -hmm. those are three of the times that i really had fun i mean i i was in the movie the interpreter with nicole kidman and sean penn being directed by Sidney pollack that was amazing just to be acting with sean penn was really cool um so i've been lucky you know i tell people Unfortunately, Negar, as you know, in our culture, a lot of times parents want their kids to go and do things like law or medicine or something that the parents would feel proud of. And unfortunately, I think that the parents are not looking at what the kid wants to do. So mm -hmm. since I was a kid, I wanted to be in acting and my parents kept pushing me in another direction. And it wasn't until I was in my mid-20s when I finally realized, you know, you live once and you can't live to please your parents. You have to live for yourself. And if you can live and make yourself happy, then hopefully you can make other people happy. And uh, that was the moment when I felt like my life, you know, adult life really started finding its way. And, and I felt free and I felt excited. So that's when I felt successful at 26 when I decided to get into an improv comedy class and just started doing this. And so everything else that's happened, in my opinion, is just icing on the cake. I just pinch myself every time I end up on a movie set or I end up doing a you know, stand-up comedy show at the Kennedy Center or wherever I am. Um, it's all been just unexpected. If you'd asked me 20 years ago, where do you think you'll be performing? I never would have said any of those things. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm glad you did it. You got into the field. I told you, I once sent you a picture that I was on a conference in Europe and I met um, some colleagues from Turkey and Morocco and Tunisia, I think. When I told them I'm Iranian-American, they all asked me if I know Maz Jabrani and that <laughs> they're all your fans and follow yeah. very closely. Yeah. Well, you know, that's the thing. Of, that's the power of, of, of social media. I think what happened was when we did the Access of Evil comedy tour, the way that came about, Mitzi Shore, who's the owner of the comedy store, um, she's mm -hmm. passed away as well. Um, but that the comedy store in Los Angeles is maybe the most famous comedy club in the world. And it's where people like David Letterman, Jay Leno, Eddie Murphy, Richard Pryor, um, you know, uh, Louis C.K., uh, gosh, you name it, they've gone through there. Chelsea Handler, um, Jim Carrey, uh, all of these people have gone through the comedy store. And so in the early 2000s, Mitzi uh, made me a regular at the comedy store, which means you're now part of the comedians who work there regularly. Um, and uh, uh, right before, this was in 2000, when there was an uprising, the Intifada with the Palestinians and the Israelis. And mm -hmm. Mitzi, who was Jewish, was watching 
television and she said, you know, I had an epiphany. I realized there's going to be a need for a positive voice for Muslims in the near future. This is before September 11th. So then she decides to put a show together with her Muslim and Middle Eastern comedians and she's going to call it the Arabian the Arabian Nights. The problem was I was the only Muslim comedian there and I'm not even that religious but I was the closest she had I was the Iranian comedian at the club mm -hmm. so then she found uh, Ahmed Ahmed who's Egyptian American and we found uh, Aaron Cater who's Palestinian and my friend Sam Tripoli who's Armenian and basically anybody who was from any part of the world close to the Middle East was on the show and it's called the Arabian Nights the problem with the Arabian Nights as you know is um Iranians would come to the show, you know, in, in Los Angeles and they'd say, oh, we really had a good time. But, you know, Iranians aren't Arabs. And I'd, <laughs> and I'd say, I know, but that's what the name the lady gave it. So what are you going to do? So eventually me, Ahmed and Aaron went off and we renamed it the Axis of Evil Comedy Tour. We mm -hmm. added another Palestinian named Dino Bidala to the show. We were the first group of Middle Eastern slash Muslim comics to perform on uh, I, Comedy Central, I think. Like they did a special with us, the Access of Evil Comedy Tour. And this was in 2007. And this is around the time YouTube was taking off. So people were taking our clips and they were circulating it with their, you know, emails. So, so I would get emails uh, from email groups that I was a member of going, oh, look at this Iranian comedian. He did a joke where he says, I'm Persian like the cat. Meow. So all of a sudden, <laughs> these things started going viral. Mm -hmm. And that grew to the point where um, I, like you said, I was all of a sudden becoming known in, you know, gosh, the Middle East, uh, Australia, Europe, by people that were not just Iranians, but they were Arabs and Australians and Americans and Swedes. And just the, that's the power of social media. So it's interesting to me because sometimes Iranians will message me say why don't you do your shows in in farsi and i say well number one i grew up in america so i'm more comfortable doing comedy in english than i am doing it in farsi even though i speak farsi fluently stand-up comedy is a different thing you can't just directly translate your jokes and and feel comfortable and secondly i say my audiences are mixed and that's just the truth i mean if you come to my shows you'll see people that are indian and pakistani and chinese and white and black and and um, and I prefer that. I'd rather have mixed audiences um, because it's just more fun and, and it brings us together. So, yeah, it's nice when I hear people from different backgrounds. I've had people come to my show. It's, it's interesting. I had like a couple of Japanese girls come to my show. They didn't even speak English. They were just fans. <laughs> and I don't know how they became fans, but they were into it. So it's pretty cool. Mm. But how much do you think, because I mean, humor and sarcasm together with poetry, it's all very essential to Iranian culture. How much of that cultural background, even though your jokes are in English, it's in an American culture where you grow up, but how much of that cultural background do you think you, you can see in your work? Well, the whole thing is I think stand-up comedy is an American art form the way we have it now, which is you go on stage and you talk about your life. You reveal mm -hmm. all the ugliness in your life. You talk about things that you did that weren't so glamorous. You know, you got to reveal yourself. And I think the Iranian culture goes against that. They say, no, 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 don't tell anybody about anything that's wrong with you. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I grew up in this culture of, no, talk about what's wrong with you. Talk about what you did wrong. And so you know, you need to train an audience to be open to that. So it's interesting because whereas I might go to a comedy club in America and do some jokes um, that are, you know, sarcastic or revealing of some something that is personal. And I, if I mention that in a Persian, let's say, clubhouse with uh, some Iranians, some Iranians go, no, 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 you shouldn't talk about those things. It's not right. Mm -hmm. And my whole point is like, no, we should talk about those things. So I would say it's the opposite. I don't think that my Iranianness has influenced my comedy as much as I'm trying to bring my comedy to the Iranian community. Like even if you watch my special on Netflix, the immigrant special, I talk about my support of the gay community. And I know that a lot of Iranians are very conservative when it comes to things like that. Like, no, mm. no, fine, you should be gay, but keep it to yourself. And I'm like, no, gay people... <laughs> are should be accepted no matter where and what. And, and, and so... I find myself sometimes challenging the Iranian community to come to 
um, my side. I feel that I had to fight my parents to get into this in the first place. So I always feel like there will be those in the Iranian community who will judge me for certain things. I recently did a, did a show where I was doing some jokes about, I forget what, I might have said balls or, or fart or something like that. And there was some Iranian audience members who were upset. Oh, you you know, that's that's very... Uh, you know, disrespectful for you to say that. And I'm going, get out of here. Just leave me alone. Like, I don't need you to try to parent me. I'm 49 years old. <laughs> um, so I think it's the opposite. I don't think that the Iranian side has influenced the comedy as much as the comedy is trying to influence the Iranian side. Mm -hmm. Let me ask you one last uh, political question. We talked about the Trump era, the Bush era, and pretty much the past four decades where you've lived in this country, there has been mostly political tensions between Tehran and Washington. But then there was also this brief moment in the second term of Obama's presidency where diplomatic relations didn't really resume, but there were some diplomatic negotiations. There was eventually a nuclear deal. We saw Iranian and American diplomats for the first time appearing together in public, even shaking hands on camera, which was really unheard of. And then now we have a new president, a new administration who is sort of trying that path again and reversing the past four years of, of Trump's Iran policy. What do you think about that, this new Biden's new diplomatic approach towards Iran and the path that he wants to pursue beyond that? You know, my number one hope is for freedom for the people of Iran. I, mm -hmm. It breaks my heart to see just, you know, some of these laws that are based in Islamic law, like women having to cover themselves up, uh, you know, young people not being able to just enjoy being young. I mean, it's it's just atrocious and it's, and it's um, totally um, unacceptable. So I really hope for a free Iran as we move forward. Now, when it comes to diplomacy versus maybe sanctions, I would say we've tried 40-something years of being the enemy, of sanctioning each other, uh, of sanctioning Iran. And, and I think that the hardliners in Iran benefit from that. I think that they're able mm -hmm. to point at America as the enemy and uh, say that's why, you know, that's the reason we're not successful is because America, you know. And so I was under the hope that with some diplomacy, and allowing Iran into the world economy, they would get a taste for what that was like. Now, whether that would mean, you know, American companies going into Iran or what have you, I would hope that that would help the general population of Iran. Um, first of all, financially, I would hope that it would help establish um, a, a stronger middle class and, and give hope and opportunity to those who've suffered under these sanctions. And the second hope I had was that what would happen is, by coming into the world economy, that the the government would then be held accountable. So if then they went went and did some human rights violations, it would be easier for us to say, okay, we're going to pull out again. You know, these companies that came in that are helping you uh, thrive are going to pull out, and so now they have a real loss at their hand that they could, you know, it's a palpable loss that they could lose if they continue to carry out authoritarian actions. Um, and, and, and I also um, was, was hoping that the other thing is that if they were to proceed with diplomacy and the finances, the economic situation didn't get better for the people and the other things such as pollution and healthcare and all that stuff did not get better for people, then the regime would have no one else to blame. Really, then we would see that they are at fault, which I, we already know they're at fault for mismanaging Iran. But they would, mm -hmm. that would be even more of a proof of that, and and that would be even more cause for the people of Iran to demand that that they change the government to a more democratic, more open government, and hopefully not a government that's based in religion. I I personally am a firm believer of a separation of church and state. Uh, I don't think that you can, you know, again. Uh, it breaks my heart. It breaks my heart to see the way that the people of Iran have to live because there's a lot of young people with a lot of hope, but it feels like there's no opportunity. Um, there's a lot of rules. You know, you can't, somebody said, I think it was Shirin Abadi or, or maybe it was um, Nasrin Sotudeh. One of them said that uh, the Islamic Republic wasn't a revolution 
based in religion. It was a revolution against women. And that makes sense, you know, like the just I think it was Sutude who said, when you make women force women to dress a specific way, you're beginning to take their rights away. And um, we see that, you know, and, and it breaks my heart the way women are treated, Baha'is, LGBTQ, and anyone who is critical of the government, they should be able to, you know, express themselves. Um, but uh, unfortunately, they can't. So I don't know what the answer is, uh, but I know that we've tried 40 something years of fighting. And I thought if we at least had given diplomacy a little more of a chance, we could have at least seen if that works or not. Mm-hmm. Well, and finally, coming out of politics, what is the first thing you're going to do when this pandemic era ends and we're back to normal? Well, I'm excited already because I've been going to the comedy clubs in Los Angeles. They're doing shows, limited seating, but that's been amazing. Um, I'm looking forward to being able to go away. You know, it's interesting because my wife and I feel like between the kids and the pandemic, it's like we haven't had a chance to just hang out as adults and just put our feet up. You know, now we have a dog. So it would be nice. I think we're going to try and go somewhere um, soon. I think the kids are going to go away to sleepaway camp, which is our chance to make a run for somewhere. I don't know where. So I'm looking forward to traveling a little bit. <laughs> okay. Well, on that note, Maz, I want to thank you for joining the Iran podcast. Thank you, uh, Negarjun, and uh, be safe and hope to see you soon. Thank you, and have fun on your travel wherever you go. Okay, you take care. That was Maz Jobrani, an Iranian-American comedian and actor joining me from California. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Iran Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to us on your favorite podcast apps and follow us on Twitter at Iran Podcast. You can also support our work by going to anchor.fm slash the Iran podcast and then clicking on support. Until next time, goodbye.